G'day. It's better than yesterday. Thanks so much for listening. I don't make this show by myself. There's people I make it with. Uh, I need to pay them because they're very good at their jobs. So if you hear an ad here, thank you. You help us keep the lights on. If you don't, you're going to hear David Hunt say something excellent. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The first time we had an Australia Day, I think it's in the early 1910s. And it's actually an initiative of uh, the Catholic Church in Sydney, which doesn't want to celebrate Empire Day because the Irish Catholics didn't much like the British Empire at the time. They actually chose a some date, I think in August, the patron saint day of the patron saint of Australia, one of the many manifestations of the Virgin Mary. And that manifestation of the Virgin Mary had become a saint because effectively an Italian pope had been freed after the Battle of Leipzig from Napoleon's forces and had walked back to Rome. And this particular manifestation of the Virgin Mary then becomes a saint. She becomes the saint of Australia. And so our first Australian day had nothing to do with Australia. It was to do with an Italian pope in a German city returning to Rome from being imprisoned by a Frenchman. Done to piss off the British because they didn't want to celebrate Empire Day. That is author and historian David Hunt. And this is Better Than Yesterday. Hello and welcome. To better than yesterday, I'm Washi Ginsburg. Thanks heaps for being here. Welcome. It's a show called Better Than Yesterday. This show is going to help you make today better than yesterday. That's what it does. On, that's what it says on the box. And that's what we're here to do three times a week. Uh, you're going to hear something on this show that's going to help your day be better than it was. 
that's the guarantee. Uh, the show goes all the way back to 2013, and there's um, so many episodes to check out. Uh, Mondays, I'm here with a guest. Fridays, I'm here with you. And Wednesdays, I'm also here with a guest, and it's just a bit of a listen back to some tasty, chunky bits of uh, previous episodes that you might not have caught in full, and um, they're pretty fantastic. I'm really grateful to get your po- uh, your feedback. Send Osher email at gmail.com. And you can also find me on Instagram. Thanks for everybody uh, who listened to Friday's episode about just start. I'd love to know what you've just started. Let me know. What did you just start? I'd love to hear it. And still, feedback about the Saul Griffith episode, which if you haven't checked out, is a cracker. And also the episode I did with Audrey. It was so nice to hear that again. I, I cried when I listened to it, when I listened to her talking about them the night she met me. I hadn't heard that in a while. It was really nice to visit her, visit again. Hey, um... Today's episode features one of my favourite human beings ever, Australian historian David Hunt. Now, why is history important? Because history never repeats, but it often rhymes. It's very important to know how the road you're walking on got built, because that might give you an idea of where that road is headed. And David Hunt has a particular gift to describing what happened in the creation of our country as we know it today in a way that was not taught in my high school or my primary school at the very least. We kind of got the, yeah, 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 boomerangs, yeah, 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 first fleet flag, uh, there was gold mining, um, there was a bushranger with a tin hat on, um, oh, great, Federation, uh, Anzacs, Depression, World War II, uh, Vietnam, Commonwealth Games, Olympic Games, Oh, uh, America's Cup, uh, now. But a lot happened, a lot happened uh, to give us the, the, the country that we have today. And it's super important to understand that. Now, David's written two other fantastic books. His latest one's called Girt Nation, but he's also written uh, True Girt, and before that, his first book, Girt, which is just absolutely brilliant. In fact, there's a podcast based on the first book, Gert. It's called Rum, Rebels and Ratbags, which you can find wherever you found this podcast. David Hunt Writer is where he is online. You can also find him on Twitter, David Hunt Gert, G-O-R-T, as in Gert by C. He's very active there. And I couldn't be more thrilled to bring you this conversation with David Hunt. David Hunt, it's fantastic to speak to you today. Where do we find you? Where do you find me? You find me in sunny Sydney, free from lockdown. I'm roaming the streets, not as we speak, but I'm out and about, getting out there. I'm sure over the course of all this pandemic, you were busily preparing for the next next Gert book, which would have taken in the Spanish flu. Yes, I, I just call it Gert Mass Death, I think. Uh, <laughs> It's it's unfortunate. I mean, if that sort of thing happens again, I'd I'd lose a great great proportion of my readership. So I'm um, I'm hoping that there are still enough people alive out there to buy books. Well, just a, a bit of context. You've been on the show before, and I am incredibly grateful to say that you and I have worked on a number of projects since you've been on the show. And mm. we, we are in the in the process of working on a project which you can't talk about, but. It has brought enormous pleasure in my life to be in more contact with you. And it's a continuation of what we spoke about the first time we spoke in that by the way of which you tell the story of our country, you have opened my eyes to a new way to see the country in front of me today. And it's an enormous gift that you bring to people, so much so that you've gone, you know what, I'm going to give you another book. It's my third book, 
It's called Girt Nation. And so there's Girt, there's True Girt, and now Girt Nation. Yes. Available from all good bookstores. Uh, And bad ones as well. What time frame does Gert Nation take us from to? What what what's the bite we're taking out of Australian history here? Uh, Gert Nation is all about the coming together of the Australian colonies into the nation that we all love, the nation of Australia. And it's about the development of an Australian identity. What were the factors that caused the people of the disparate colonies, uh, British colonies, to feel that they were one people, that they were quite literally uh, one nation? And what were the, um, who were the winners in that particular arrangement and who were the losers? Who had a seat at the Australian barbecue? That's what it's all about. Yeah, it's super important to know this stuff because you may think, oh, it's 120 something, 150 years ago in some cases. Hmm. 150 years ago, we don't need to know about this. Yet, to this day, we are just in the middle of states and the Federation of States, yeah. like bargaining over who's got the money, who gets to call when we can travel back overseas again. And yep. these seeds were sown in the mid-1800s, weren't they? Absolutely. It's mate against mate, state against state, or uh, in my book, colony against colony. <laughs> <coughs> there, are, there are real echoes of what's happening today. Um, the period that I cover is largely 1880 to 1903, with a little bit of retrospective stuff thrown in to look at the lives of some of the key movers and shakers in the Federation movement, uh, the women's rights movement, in in the lead-up to that 1880 date. And the thing that you notice is how much all of the colonies distrusted each other in the lead-up to Federation. (laughs) Uh, New South Wales and Victoria were each vying for power to be the big cheese. They didn't like each other much at all. In fact, Henry Parks, the Premier of New South Wales and regarded as the father of Federation by many, attempted to change the name of New South Wales to Australia by legislation. None of the rest of you are Australians. I'm going to be calling New South Wales Australia. And the Victorian said, no, look, why don't you just call yourself Con Victoria? Because that's what you are, a bunch of convicts. And, of course, Western Australia, Western Australia didn't want a bar of it. They just sat there in their sand to the west and and sort of complained bitterly about Federation. They're not actually listed in the Enabling Act of the British Parliament to found uh, the Australian nation in what's commonly misnamed the preamble to the Constitution. They're missing because they didn't sign up until after all of the other colonies were on board. So this thing that we're seeing play out right now with mm. premiers calling each other names yep. and questioning each other's policies and yep. you know some premiers being fairly vocal about those idiots over east or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> this has been going on for what do you think is the, the basis of it? Well, look, there was, uh, for instance, Western Australia always felt very different. It always felt very put upon. And until the gold rush of the 1890s, it was the poorest and the smallest of the colonies. And its main claim to fame was that it exported bird shit to the world. And until the gold rush came along, they were they were not seen as major players. And then suddenly the Western Australians are the richest place in the world with the 1890s gold rush. And they didn't want those damn Easterners getting their hands on its gold. 
And it was only the fact that so many Easterners moved to Western Australia to mine the gold and lots of the gold miners were New South Welshmen and Victorians who wanted to federate and threatened to secede from Western Australia and take the, the richest bit of it away from them that eventually brought them to the federation table. So, the, hang on, so the minerals lobby <laughs> was doing things to our nation even back then? Oh, look, look, Australian history is full of miners. Take it back to, you know, the Eureka Rebellion. It's basically a bunch of miners not wanting to pay tax. Nothing much has changed. <laughs> uh, so... You've got the mineral lobby or the mining lobby has been incredibly influential, not so much from the days of the New South Wales and Victorian gold rushes in the 1850s when miners were individuals. But as you get to, say, BHP uh, being established in the 1880s in New South Wales in Broken Hill, this becomes a large company. And mining becomes not so much, you know, the happy-go-lucky adventurer spending his nugget money on grog, it becomes a big business. And several of the industrial disputes that sort of formed the Australian labour movement centred around mining. And uh, we actually had an American president out here, you know, running the Sons of Gwalia Mine in, in, in Western Australia. Uh, Herbert Hoover cut his teeth as a Western Australian mining manager and, and revolutionised mining in that colony. Hang on, so... The actual president Hoover, as in the Hoover Dam Hoover, mm. before he was president, he worked out yeah, here. Yeah. He was out here in the as a miner. He was out here stripping industrial conditions from miners, making them work long hours in dangerous conditions, and turned the Western Australian gold mines into the most profitable in the world. He would have appreciated what the builders of the Hoover Dam did back in America because they did exactly the same thing. They stripped workers' wages and conditions, made them work in extreme heat. 17 of them died from heat exhaustion, I think. So Hoover was not the worker's friend, um, and he learned how to be an industrial bastard here in Australia. <laughs> It's, it's interesting in that, you know, we have this idea and, you know, I know we've spoken about this, that Australia was, you know, the nation built upon the sheep's back, yeah. but how much mining has played a role. As you mentioned, you know, we wouldn't have, yeah. you know, the labour movement for, for wherever it stands now, but this yeah. kind of fight towards better conditions for workers, we wouldn't have yeah. that were it not for these gigantic corporations exploiting people and workers unionising and organising. We wouldn't have these conditions now were it not for mining. We wouldn't have the nation we have now and the bounty yeah. we have now were it not for mining. Yeah. What can we learn as we look forward to a place where, well, we might not be able to dig up any of this coal, like all this coal here that we might be counting on. We might It may have to stay in the ground. What can we learn as a nation about when, when mines closed and when mm. the, the, the parts of the country that did have mines mm. stopped operating. What can we learn about that? Well, mining along with, with shipping and the wool industry were the three major sort of things that led to the, the birth of the, the labour movement in Australia or, or unionisation and the, and the Labour Party, the, the politics of, of, of labour. With mining, you could see when mines went dead in small Towns. There are bits of Western Australia, there are some ghost towns there that were incredibly prosperous mining communities that are now literally towns in the sand that you can go and visit as a, as a tourist. When there were miners' strikes in, in, in Broken Hill in the 1890s and 
uh, mining stopped briefly, you had incredible social unrest. You actually had, during those miners' strikes, you had women in in the Broken Hill community in Silverton nearby mobilising and forming a sort of militant women's league whilst their husbands were busy picketing and the mine managers were trying to come to the mines, you'd have these women assaulting the mine managers and, and scab labour with sticks, broom handles, axe handles, uh, even hot tar. Oi. Injuring. Yeah, so they were a particularly militant bunch, the mining communities. And mining has really, I think, revolutionised some Australian technology as well. We became adept at the turn of the 20th century at extracting ore, coming up with, you know, world-leading technologies to to get at the good stuff. So it has played an important part in our history. And, you know, I suspect in some capacities uh, we'll continue to do so, perhaps not not the black stuff. Australians have always loved the black stuff. It hasn't just been Scott Morrison, like Gollum with the ring in Parliament, saying, this is coal, my precious, I loved it. Mm. Sir Henry Parks, at the first international exhibition in Melbourne in 1880, part of the New South Wales exhibition was a giant statue of Henry Parks carved from coal. That's how much Henry Parks loved coal. That's that's exquisite. That is... Just okay. So the premier of the state says, "Okay, says, here's the international carve me in coal. Carve no, I don't want bronze. No, no don't want marble. Too Italian. Yeah. Coal, coal. <laughs> My God. Well, if, they, if there's something that Scott Morris never wants to, you know, put himself down in history as the president's yeah. there, you go yeah, for yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. I am the coal prime minister. Go for it. <laughs> oh yeah. My God. There's one thing that I, as we've spoken about history. That great Mark Twain line, history never repeats, but it often rhymes. Mm. There's a fabulous through line in your book about China because yeah. we're heading towards an election. It yeah. sounds like it's going to be a khaki election. People are going to be, beat the drums of war and talk about Taiwan and threat to the north and China, 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 China. But this is nothing new, is it? It's nothing new. So Anti-Chinese sentiment first appeared in Australia really during the 1850s gold rushes, mainly because the Chinese were good at coming over here and finding our gold when we weren't terribly good at it. And as those gold rushes petered out, there was sort of a bit of a detente. But with the gold rushes coming in again in Queensland in the 1870s and Chinese immigration to Australia, the Northern Territory was predominantly Chinese. It's, it was a majority Chinese population wow. for the back end of the 19th century. And you've got large Chinese communities in Queensland and the Northern Territory. You've got significant Chinese communities forming around Sydney and Melbourne and some rural areas. And anti-Chinese sentiment really, really peaked. And you have a series of incredibly restrictive laws at the back end of the 19th century, not only limiting Chinese immigration, you could only import so many Chinese people per tonnage of your ship. Oh, my God. So if you had a 50-tonne ship, uh, you might be able to import five Chinese people uh, or perhaps seven slightly smaller Chinese people. Uh, But the, the Chinese immigration was linked to ship's tonnage. They had to pay a poll tax. The New South Wales and Victorian governments, uh, when Chinese boats came here in the late 1880s and there were tens of thousands of people protesting in the streets of Melbourne and Sydney against these 
Chinese people unloading, even though they were legally entitled to do so. You've got the government basically doing what they did in the Tampa case, refusing them to be let off the ship and then effectively deporting them to an island, Thursday Island, to work in substandard conditions as perlers and the like. But there was this terrible fear of Chinese invasion. You have prominent political figures writing about the risk of invasion from the north. You have the Labor Party building its brand on racism, making Asian exclusion or the exclusion of all coloured folk the number two part of its four-part party platform as it, as it evolves. And you have Labor feeding this xenophobia so by the time you have the Immigration Restriction Act in 1901, it was perfectly non-controversial to pass laws that were designed to exclude all Asian and coloured people from Australia. But of course, because the British Empire was full of coloured people, uh, the British Empire asked us to be less obviously racist. So rather than banning the immigration of coloured people, we imposed a dictation test that we could selectively apply on, on any immigrant we didn't like the look of. And we could ask them to take dictation of 50 or more words of any language of our choosing, originally any European language, once several Asian people actually got through by knowing European languages, you know, we would start to ask them to translate, you know, a passage of Jane Austen into Swahili or, or Finnish or some of the more obscure languages just to make sure they couldn't pass the dictation test. So the history of the fear of the Chinese and Chinese exclusion is very much a part of the coming together of, of the Australian colonies as a nation. We actually sent troops to occupy Peking in 1900. So New South Wales, Victorian and South Australian troops were part of the occupying forces during the Boxer Rebellion in 1900. And throughout the 19th century and the early 20th century, Western powers took Chinese territory, they occupied Chinese ports, they demanded favourable trading rights, they insisted that Chinese peasants buy their opium. You can understand why the Chinese... Uh, perhaps have historically been unimpressed with the way they've been treated by Western powers. So just the the idea that we got, hey, you just kind of got to be a little less on the nose about how exclusionary you are. Uh, the first time it was applied was to a British citizen from India, an Indian soldier, a member of Her Majesty's Armed Forces, a recently retired Indian soldier, and he was asked to complete a, a dictation test in a language that he had no clue about and was literally tied up, dragged back onto the boat, and uh, his deportation was ordered. Right, you're good enough to put yourself in harm's way and take a bullet for the Queen, but you're not good enough to mm. come and, oh, my goodness. So really, it's horrible how little things have changed, isn't it, David? Well, yeah. And what was really interesting was at, on the Federation procession on the 1st of January 1901, there were troops throughout from throughout the British Empire marching from the Domain in Sydney to Centennial Park, rather, rather like Mardi Gras, with floats... <laughs> Uh, Amazing. And with archers, festive archers, and everybody's cheering, everybody gets a cheer, and suddenly these Indians turn up with their turbans and their exotic dress, and and there's this sort of moment of silence of people, oh, yeah, okay, we'll give them a cheer because, you know, it's a party day and we're all getting a free drink. But the fear of Asian immigration is something that lasted and turned Australia from having the highest standard of living in the world 
really at the time of federation into something of an economic backwater a few decades later because we just stopped taking experienced hard-working people who wanted to come here uh, and the last vestiges of the white Australia policy weren't removed until 1973. Oh my goodness me! Mm. And it's it's when you say 1973, that means mm. that's a that's one year older than me. So there mm. are people, well and truly, people who would have been in positions of decision making power mm. that still mm. have direct influence on people right now who are in positions yeah. of decision making power. And yeah. so this stuff has long tendrils. It doesn't just like, I oh, know that was a policy from a long time ago. No, this stuff is still round. If you have a look at Alexander Downer, his father was also a minister for foreign affairs and, and immigration and presided over immigration restriction in the late 1950s, uh, early 1960s. His grandfather, Sir John Downer, was a champion of the White Australia policy. So the White Australia policy is something that is familiar to, to many older Australians today. And it was substantially dismantled in the 1960s, but you still didn't have a racially new, neutral immigration policy fully until 1973. Alexander Downer was the Minister for Immigration at the time of the Tampa affair? He was. He was. Uh, he was He was the guy in the hot seat. Immigration has been a downer for Australia for, for a very long time. <laughs> Glorious. <laughs> you come for the history, you stay for the that David Hunt gold. But it's this, it's this gallows humour that I love about your books, and we've talked mm. about this before, in that when you read David Hunt's books, you laugh because if you don't laugh, you will literally weep at the devastating yep. inhumanity of what actually went on. Another great through line that you have in your book is the treatment of our First Nations Indigenous people yeah. over those years and coming into federation and as as colonialism is expanding and, mm. and the agricultural industry was pushing out further and further into parts of the country that had yet even had any white contact, mm. things started to really kind of come to a head during this point, didn't they? They did. And the period of the book in which I focus on here is really the period of time of Aboriginal protection, where governments believed that parking Aboriginal people, First Nations people on, in reserves and missions where they would be not seen and not heard was the way to go. And you have Aboriginal people being uprooted from their lands, put together with people from dis different social groups, and several of them make a real go of it down in Corrindirk, down in Victoria. They set up a successful tobacco planting uh, operation, a successful farming operation. And, of course, once they are successful, the white farmers want to move in on the action. And so wherever you have Aboriginal success, you have the white farmers basically moving them off the lands that have been given to them as reserves and, and taking them over for themselves. What you also have is the the policies of separation of, in inverted commas, half-caste, in inverted commas, not full-blood Aboriginal people, which was sort of launched by Alfred Deakin, the central character of my book in, in Victoria. And this was hugely destructive because all of the, in inverted commas, mixed-race Aboriginal people who'd been living in those Victorian reserves were effectively taken out of them in an attempt to integrate into broader society. And these were generally the younger people, the people who'd been doing a lot of the, the productive labour. And these going concerns lost their workforce and families were split up 
children were removed, you know that particular story. And Aboriginal protection didn't end in Australia really until 1981, the lead-up to the 1982 Brisbane Commonwealth Games. It was still in place in, in, in a form in Queensland. And Queensland finally got rid of its Aboriginal protection system because it was worried that African countries wouldn't attend the Commonwealth Games because they, they might accuse Queensland of being a little bit racist. So it was oh, sport. Who would it ever was have... sport that came to the rescue in Australia. Again. It was sport that ended that last vestige of uh, Aboriginal protection in Australia. So if ever there was an ironic name of a policy, mm. it is Aboriginal protection. When they say protection, yeah. what, what do they actually mean? Well, Aboriginal protection was a way of controlling Aboriginal people's lives, introduced in, in 1868, I think, the, the first proper regime in Victoria. Shortly after the first Australian international tour by an Australian sporting team made up of Aboriginal cricket players from Victoria that toured England. And Australians didn't quite know what to do when they actually won half of the games they played over in England. Should they be cheering some Australians beating the Poms or should they be embarrassed that there are a bunch of conquered natives tailing up their betters? And I think probably those last feelings came to the fore because there weren't very more uh, Aboriginal cricket tours because part of Aboriginal protection involved restricting Aboriginal movement. Uh, so in Victoria, you could be confined to your reserve, you could be confined to the borders of Victoria. So some of these border issues that we have today actually started off as an Aboriginal person without their papers couldn't enter another colony. That was later extended to Chinese people had to have stamped papers to cross colonial borders. And of course, the real kicker in the Aboriginal story around the time of Federation, there is an amendment move to the suffrage bill that grants the broadest franchise to people anywhere in the world. All women could not only vote in the 1902 franchise bill in, in, in Australian federal elections, they could run for parliament the first time that had occurred at a national level anywhere in the world. And then a late amendment was moved, first of all, to remove voting rights from various Asian and Pacific Islander and African people, which seemed non-controversial for most members of parliament because we'd already sought to exclude those people through immigration restrictions. So if you can say we don't want them here, well, why, why would we give them a vote? Why would we have, as one politician said, a piebald ballot box? But the real kicker was when an amendment was moved to exclude voting rights for Aboriginal people because these people had been born in Australia. They'd obviously been in Australia for a very long time. And there was a lot of opposition to that. But in the end, the eyes had it. And so Aboriginal people were effectively disenfranchised at the federal level. And unlike the disenfranchisement of Asian people, when those people had children in Australia, they had the right to vote, irrespective of their skin colour. But the exclusion of Aboriginal people was intergenerational. So if you happen to be a grandchild, you know, until 1965, Queensland becomes the last state to allow Aboriginal people to vote. Uh, federally, I think it's uh, 1962, uh, same with the Northern Territory and Western Australia. So you have you have decades of Aboriginal exclusion, intergenerational exclusion from the democratic process. And that meant from lots of other processes as well. If you didn't have a voice, if you didn't have a vote, 
governments could basically treat you as they willed. And this is really important stuff to know because so many mm. people just don't realise. I, I grew up in Queensland. We've talked yeah. about this personally quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and 1965, so I got there 13 years after that. So yeah. there would there would be people who were my parents' age that had never yeah. vo- you know never voted in their young lives. Absolutely, my and God. You, one of one of the things that absolutely floored me in doing my research was the educational apartheid that was in place in my own state of oh, New yeah. South Wales. Until 1972, Aboriginal children could be excluded from schools if the parents of other children objected. What? So fucking what? This is this is during my lifetime. If the parents said, "Look, um, we're a little bit uncomfortable about Johnny playing with this kid because, well, frankly, he's not the right sort of person," Aboriginal kids were simply kicked out of schools, and those rules weren't changed in New South Wales until 1972. 72. 72. Yeah, and also the clean, clad, and courteous test was another test applied to Aboriginal kids which is if you spoke back to the teacher, if you didn't wear a correct uniform, if you weren't well-groomed and well-looked after, you could be excluded from school. And the so-called clean, clad and courteous test was only ever applied to Aboriginal kids. You had plenty of poor white kids or poor Italian, you know, immigrants in schools, but this this test was only ever applied to Aboriginal kids. That is, oh, my God. And it's, it's so important that people hear this stuff, David, because... Yeah, I, I, look, I must admit, uh, you know, I've, I've got fairly deep wells of cynicism. But I was, I was quite staggered that when I was born, these sorts of exclusions were still in place in, in the state in which I lived. And when I've posted about that, it wasn't applied across the board. And most schools by that stage have stopped doing it. But I've had some people from Western New South Wales contacting me and saying, yes, in the late 60s, 1970, those sorts of rules were still in place and they were removed from schools because parents of, of the white kids objected. It's just so important that we know this stuff, David, because it's so important that yeah. when, when we hear First Nations, Indigenous people very rightly speak out and call out government policy, it's so important to understand. It's like, wait, 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 wait. Like, at least it's coming from a long history yeah. of, of, of disenfranchisement and, and, and effectively apartheid. This in, is not in, 1788. This is not 1770. No. This is, no, it's not. This is while people that you are talking yeah. to were alive and it happened to them. Yeah. <laughs> Dear listeners, I would also like to point out there are many happy things in my book. Oh, yeah. There, really there are many happy things. So many. It's hilarious. I've got to say, it's a fucking funny book. They all are. They always are. You've got to read David Hunt's books. I've talked about your books on this show so often, but you, you absolutely have to. Okay, so considering we've just gone there, I did want to ask you about the native police, but mm. I'll leave that to my listeners to uh, explore the the harrowing tale of, of, of the native police. And, mm. and not only that, we talked about labour and we, we talked about how some of the larger cattle stations in, in Queensland and particularly in the, the Cape area as they move mm. towards the Northern Territory and border just happen to find willing workers already mm. on their land. Look at you. Yes. You happen to be here. <laughs> with, with no requirement to pay, um, said workers. <laughs> yeah. So you've got... You know, you had famous industrial disputes in, I think, 1966 in the Northern Territory of generations of Aboriginal stockmen working on Northern Territory stations saying, look, we'd, we'd probably like something more than the blankets and the damper and the tobacco and the tea we've been getting for the last, the last hundred years. So you had 
you know, Western Australian protection policy not only allowed station owners to act as magistrates for their own Aboriginal staff and to physically punish them for infractions, to whip them or use of restraints such as neck chains. You had a policy in, in Western Australia of effectively no requirement to pay Aboriginal workers. You did have to give them blankets. But if those Aboriginal people gave their blankets to somebody else, you could punish them for stealing government or private property. So they didn't even own the blankets they were given. They were blankets given on sufferance. Oh, this this milk crate remains the property of Peter's. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. How many times have I been sitting trespassing on the milk crates of Peter's? Yeah. As you mentioned earlier, the central character of your book is Mm. an interesting cat by the name of Deacon. Now, Mm. Deacon's a university. Mm. It's uh, probably a a road or a highway or a hill or a park near you. Mm. You know, like Macquarie in your books before, Mm. we learn a lot about this person that we kind of see their name everywhere. We don't quite... Mm. I mean, Deacon's a a humongous suburb in Canberra. Is there such a thing as a humongous suburb in Canberra? (laughs) For Canberra? It's it's four whole streets. It's enormous. Does anybody live there or is it just roundabouts? (laughs) It's just very true. If you've never been to Canberra, not a lot of traffic lights. What do you think the what's what's the common conception of who Deacon was and what who actually was Deacon? Look, I actually hope I present Deacon a little bit sympathetically because in researching this book, and you know, my politics would be broadly described as left of centre, um, certainly on on social issues. He he was the second Prime Minister of Australia. I think he was the most influential figure in federation and the coming together of the Australian nation. Uh, he was the hand-picked uh, guy that the Australian Natives Association, this sort of nationalist organisation, uh, he was their, their spokesperson, their champion in, in Parliament. He also introduced the most progressive legislation in a range of areas, animal rights legislation, protection of workers in factories where for the first time in the world he extended some of those protection to men, not just women and children, industrial arbitration. Under him later on after Federation you have the living wage. You have these incredibly important social reforms which were pretty much reforms that the Labor Party at the time wanted. He was the leader of of the Liberals, if you like, and they were radical reformers. So his political record, I think, is is second to none in Australian history. He, He, more than any other person, I think, transformed Australia and gave us much of the machinery of of government and the machinery of the social system that we have today. So I admire him tremendously. He was, however, also in his early days, the president of the Victorian Association of Progressive Spiritualists. He was the most prominent communicator with dead people in Australian history. He was Australia's greatest liberal necromancer in that he would attend seances, he would sometimes channel spirits of his own. He believed that his hand was possessed on 49 occasions by the spirit of John Bunyan, who wrote the Pilgrim's Progress in the 17th century. And when John possessed Alfred's hand on 49 (laughs) occasions, he wrote a sequel (laughs) called A New Pilgrim's Progress, 
and uh, published it uh, as Bunyan riding through Deacon. Didn't didn't sell because it was a bit cray cray. But his first political mentor when he entered Victorian politics was Victorian Premier Richard Heels, who'd been 17 years in the coffin before he started giving Deacon political advice. A Deacon would draw the curtains, get Mrs Cohen, one of his favoured mediums, to call up Richard Heels, and Richard would dispense advice on how to govern Victoria. He took advice from uh, John Stuart Mill, the great philosopher, uh, talked to Shakespeare occasionally. Uh, Queen Victoria's dead husband, Prince Albert, uh, was interested in what Prince Albert had to say about the Irish independence back in Ireland. He took share advice from a dead Ballarat accountant. So Mrs Cohen or Madam Siegel, another of the, the mediums he visited, would give him stock tips. So he was interested in piercing the veil between life and death. He became an occultist later on in in the 1890s when he was the most prominent Victorian liberal, became a theosophist, uh, follower of the Ukrainian occultist Madame Blavatsky, who published uh, a magazine called Lucifer, to which Deacon subscribed. And, um, you know, as a theosophist, he believed that Everything in the universe was guided by the number seven, that there were seven intelligent rays of light called the Diane Cohens uh, who infused the universe with a life force known as Fohat. Uh, and by this stage, uh, he'd really reached sort of the Tom Cruise stage of his spiritual development, I think. And he also happened to be the prime minister of the country when all this stuff was going on. Uh, so I think he was a th- he, he joined the Theosophists around 1895. He was Prime Minister in 1903, but he was certainly the leading Victorian sort of liberal behind the federal push in Victoria at the Imagine time. Imagine going to dinner at Deacon's house, like mm. how's he? Well, you could you could talk to all sorts of interesting people. I would be. Hello, every- we've got Shakespeare. <sighs> uh, turn off the lights, and um, you can have a chat with. Uh, Who's that? Yeah. Oh, it's Shakespeare. <laughs> the old knock under the table. Oh, knock, routine. On the, knock on the table. <laughs> wow. Uh, because spiritualism was more popular in Melbourne than just about anywhere in the world. It was more popular in America than anywhere else in the world when Mary Todd Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's wife, invited a medium to the White House to hold a seance for her to communicate with her two dead sons. And after Abraham dies, she gets a spirit photograph taken where there she is sitting there in this sort of luminescent Lincoln-shaped blur behind her, uh, the ethereal ex-president after he'd been shot by John Wilkes Booth. And she made um, spiritualism socially respectable. And so in Australia, and in Melbourne in particular, you've got lots of lawyers, you've got lots of doctors uh, embracing spiritualism because at the same time Darwin is saying, hey, all this stuff in the Bible is not literally true. There's a move away from biblical literalism and, and people who are spiritually inquisitive are looking for new new faith systems. The thing about spiritualism, it was you could physically experience your faith. You could hear spirits knocking on wood, literally, jiggling tables, playing phantom trumpets and making phantom lights. In fact, the guy who becomes the Attorney General of Western Australia and Minister for Justice and Minister for Education came to Australia when he was basically fleeing a manslaughter charge in Canada where he'd been a medium and had killed one of his seance participants by setting them alight with the phosphorus that he used to make eerie spirit lights. Oh, crikey. He comes to Australia uh, and he proceeds to give a series of lectures as Giordano Bruno, uh, 
uh, an Italian heretic burned at the stake in the 1700s for saying Mary was not a virgin and wine was not the blood of Christ. And he pretends he's being possessed by this Italian heretic and Deacon is the guy who introduces him to an Australian audience for the first time as the president of the spiritualists. And this is the guy who in New South Wales, where he becomes a politician before a Western Australian politician, uh, shoots a clergyman whilst he's pissed, uh, accidentally shoots a clergyman, never drinks again, becomes a temperance campaigner and goes to, to Western Australia and becomes this sort of leading Labor MP, radical reformer, and he came here as a, as a fraudulent medium who'd set a bloke on fire in Canada. Well, there are certainly people who sit right now, this very moment, in our Houses of Parliament who probably haven't... Yeah, oh, Barnaby's far weirder than that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, we've got, we've, we've got some weird cats now. Equal or if not stranger... I mean, have you seen Craig Kelly's telegram? Fucking hell. <laughs> you want to talk about a grip on reality? Good Lord. More with David Hunt in just a moment. We're talking about his latest book. It's called Girt Nation. The extra bits that we might have missed about how we got to Federation, which is very important because, you know, this current situation that our country is in heading into an election and this whole national cabinet thing that we kind of invented last year, it's important to understand where all that stuff started and how what it means. And yeah, it's really, really important to understand this stuff. So we'll get back to a little more with David in just a moment. If you don't hear an ad here, we'll get straight back to the show, but you might hear an ad here. And if you do, thank you. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We are coming up to a part of the year where there's a lot of well, we can't change the date. Oh, it's a, yeah, horrible to our forefathers. How dare you? Mm. So mm. Federation is a very important day for Australia. It's the moment where we went, nope, we're a country and here we are. And yep. there it was, uh, I believe, January the 1st, 1901. Yeah. But that is not the day that we go, hooray, we're Australia. Uh, we could probably do a whole, whole podcast on this. Yeah. But no, apparently January 26 is the day that we are Australian. Through the course of your book, a few things mm. happened on, on January 26, but it wasn't ever really Australia Day, was it? No. Look, people were looking for a national day after Federation and they, and they first said, look, let's hold it on the anniversary of Federation, the 1st of January. And after a couple of years, people said, can you please not hold a public holiday on our public holiday on New Year's Day? You'll have to come up with something better than that because we Australians like our long weekends, we like our public holidays, you can't double up. And so people were searching for a relevant day, Empire Day or Commonwealth Day uh, were both in vogue in the 1900s. The first time uh, we had an Australia Day, I think it's in the early 1910s, 
and it's actually an initiative of uh, the Catholic Church in Sydney, which doesn't want to celebrate Empire Day because the Irish Catholics didn't much like the British Empire at the time. <laughs> and so it wasn't, it wasn't in January. They actually chose a some date, I think in August, which happened to be the patron saint day of the patron saint of Australia, one of the many manifestations of the Virgin Mary. And that manifestation of the Virgin Mary had become a saint because effectively an Italian pope had been freed uh, after the Battle of Leipzig from Napoleon's forces and had walked back to Rome. And this particular manifestation of the Virgin Mary is then becomes a saint. She becomes the saint of Australia. And so our first Australian day had nothing to do with Australia. It was to do with an Italian pope in a German city returning to Rome from being imprisoned by a Frenchman. And done particularly to piss off the British because it was the done, Irish done Catholic Done to piss Church. off the British because <laughs> they didn't want to celebrate Empire Day. You then have a series of Australia Days, again, not on 26th of January, during World War I, which were fundraisers for the Red Cross to basically send in donations for our boys fighting in World War I. So in my book, I tell the story of Settlement Day um, or Anniversary Day, as it was sometimes known, the 26th of January, which became celebrated around the centenary, 1888, became popular, but not as a national sort of day. And it wasn't really until the 1930s that the Australian Natives Association, the group of people who led the push for federation, they'd always wanted the 26th of January as the national day. Mm. They got their way in the 1930s, although New South Wales continued to call it Foundation Day. The last state sort of got on board in the 1940s, but lots of them held it not on the 26th of January, on the Monday closest to, to that so people could have a long weekend. And so it wasn't until 1994 that all of the Australian states actually celebrated Australia Day on the 26th of January. So to suggest it is some sort of ancient, venerable tradition for which the Anzacs fought and died for is batshit fuck fuck crazy. <laughs> it's an interesting time right now because I don't know. I'm I am I'm rubbing my hands in an invisible soap just a little bit because mm. um, uh, Elizabeth Windsor has been told to rest up, take it easy. Prince Charles in his kind of early seventies is like, ooh, <laughs> might be up for the top job here. Uh, he's, he's pulling out that walking frame. He's giving it a good oiling and. Practicing on the lawns of Buckingham Palace. Getting ready to sit on the big chair. Uh, uh. The running theme is that like, Australia would never become a republic while Elizabeth's mm. alive. Mm. As someone who is a, a student of Australian history, a student of the, as much as we don't like, like to admit it, these in incredible ties that we have back to mm. England, what do you think? We gave it a run in 99. Yeah. What do you think our chances of becoming a republic are from this point if Elizabeth does get a good innings and pass on? I'd like to think that they they are good. I tell the story in Gert Nation of some of the early Republicans. Um, Louisa Lawson, Henry Lawson's mum, published a, a newspaper, The Republican. There was a, a, a reasonably strong Republican sort of movement within the Australian colonies until 1887, Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee, and it just, that killed it. 50 years of a queen on the throne, wow, she's great. And so republicanism sort of died. And by the time of federation, there was sort of one republican involved in, in the constitutional drafting. He wasn't there for the final sort of settlement of it. 
Republicanism was effectively dead at the time of Federation and only really came strongly back in vogue as people started thinking about the bicentenary in 1988. You had the, the Australian Republican movement gathered steam in, in, in the 1990s and then Malcolm fucked it up. Yeah, Malcolm Turnbull was the guy. He was he was the guy. How do you how do you make something complex and allow it to be attacked by on both your left and right flank, um, which is a problem that Malcolm has had really. Um, Malcolm in the middle, uh, I think we'll call him. <laughs> you're welcome uh, because he's always you're he's welcome, a, Australia. I, I, I just David came up with that one then. I think I think that's quite good. I'm going to use that again. As you should for always in eternity. He, he's, he's always he's always getting attacked from both flanks, and that's what happened in with the Republicans. Look. Why does an independent nation that is proud of being distinctly Australian, why does it have a foreign head of state? Moreover, why does it have a foreign head of state that the British constitutional framework requires to be the Protestant descendant of a dead German lady? And that's what our constitution currently requires. Our head of state must always be a British monarch, must be Protestant and must be a descendant of a long-dead German. It makes no sense. However, I really would hope that for me, David, my great hope is that if we can come to a point after whether it be in the next few years when Elizabeth does pass away, that we can find a way to become a republic. We can pick a day, <sighs> any fucking day, that isn't anywhere near January 26th. Yeah, and I'm all for that. Together, yeah. that's when we can have a real party because if we could achieve that union as a country, it would yeah. be important. But we can't possibly do it if we don't look back and we don't see how we got to now. And as we've mentioned before in this conversation, it's super important to understand that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people in our community mm. who are living every single day mm. with the ongoing effects of colonisation and policy around mm. that controlled their lives more than you or I would ever accept. Exactly, exactly. And it's it's just super important. I, I think overall we're – I was talking with Audrey, so we were walking back down our street and I just – I'm just so fucking grateful that we are alive right now in this country because it is truly the greatest, most wonderful country on the planet. And we oh, are- Except for New Zealand. <laughs> Which was almost part of Australia. It was. We almost got them to join us from across the ditch. And for more on that, you should read David Gert's latest book, Gert Nation. If you haven't caught up with David's other books, Gert and True Gert, just start there. Let that be where you begin. I can't tell you, David, how many people that I've had these kind of conversations with and they're just going to, and I'll just pass them your book and then a couple of weeks later they look at me and go, oh, you've just written it in such a way that people are allowed to laugh and feel okay about not yeah. knowing a lot of this stuff and that is an enormous gift you've given us, mate, and we're really lucky to have you. And thank you. And I think that style is actually something that does appeal to Australians in a way that it may not appeal to many other people. I think the ability to laugh at ourselves and to take the piss out of ourselves and to be pretty black with our humour is something that is is strong in the Australian psyche and that's one of the excellent qualities, I think, of the Australian identity. And um, 
I'm lucky that I'm writing this book in Australia and not writing a similar history of America uh, because I would be tarred and feathered and hanging from the nearest oak tree if I attempted to do this in the States. And then cancelled. <laughs> and then cancelled afterwards. You're amazing, David. Thanks for making the time, brother. Thanks, Osha. Ladies and gentlemen, that was David Hunt. You can find him on Twitter. Tell him you heard him here on the show. David Hunt Gert, G-I-R-T, David Hunt Gert. And um, you can get his books. His books are great books for uh, perhaps people in your life who uh, may be a little inappropriate around their humour, around the Christmas table, as particularly when it comes to Australian history and uh, multicultural society and uh, because he makes you kind of laugh through your nose at the same time as telling you what actually happened and giving you reasons as to why people who are alive today might be a bit fucked off. Gert is his first book, True Gert, his second book, and the most recent book we, we just were talking about there, Gert Nation. He's absolutely fantastic. Get around him. Get amongst it. He's one of my favourite people and um, I absolutely love love his work. And uh Start at Gert and then kind of go from there. You'll get to Dark Emu, you'll get to Henry Reynolds, but start at Gert, all right? Get there. Thanks to everybody that helped me make the show today. Thanks to Rachel Barrett, my executive producer, Andy Ma, my audio producer, Rachel Barrett on research support, and, of course, Toe Hider, who made all the music. If you need to get in touch with me, it's super easy. Send Osher email at gmail.com, and I'm also on Instagram. And, yeah, tell somebody. If this show brought you value, just tell someone about the show. That's the very best thing you could ever do for me. Let somebody know. Hit share on their podcast app and send it to someone and, and let them know. Hey, listen to this. You really be the best thing you could ever do for me. All right, legends, have a cracking week. Stay safe and sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 